That's great. Well, hey, thanks for being here. I know you're not here for me. Hopefully, uh, my prayer is that, that, that God would teach you something in his word tonight. He would teach you something new or remind you of something true. Uh, and we'll really work through, in, in, a, in a few minutes we'll get there, but Proverbs chapter 1, and we'll do 1 through 7 tonight. Um, for those, a little bit of review, those are there, maybe there this morning, but maybe not all of you were. Um, we've been working through Proverbs at our church in Reading. It's called Valley Christian Family. And we've been studying, in fact, today our youth pastor, Taylor, um, taught our 10th message in the book of Proverbs. And so I've just been hanging in it and learning so much. God's been teaching me, and I'm just happy to open the scriptures for us there as well. I didn't get to introduce, this is my wife, Annette. And Annette is, uh, we've been married 27 years. It's not 47, like, I'd say, was that 47, Art? It's not there, but uh, again, we met at uh, Simpson University way back when, but Annette used to uh, come to Hume all the time, so um, glad that you are here as well. Uh, we're studying uh, Proverbs just titled Good Life. Uh, really, I'm, I'm taking that from the word blessed, and that'll come up in our teaching the next couple days, um, but God leads us and points us in ways of life, um, gives us opportunity to make choices, and he guides us if we will walk according to his spirit. But we also have the option of not and going our own way and doing what is right in our own eyes rather than what God has declared to be good and right and true. Um, as we teach tonight, I hope, I hope you're relaxed too. I've been a youth pastor most of my life, so I, I'm a little uncomfortable if everybody, if no one's moving around or throwing things. So if you need to get up and stretch out, you need to use the restroom or whatever or have a question, that's totally fine. I'm used to that. Um, as well. But hey, I uh, have a picture here. Um, uh, what are some, I, and it's okay, there's, I'm going to say on this one, there's no wrong answers. Maybe there are, but what are some words that come to mind when you see an image like this? What, what immediately comes to mind? Go ahead and, and shout something out. Direction? Mountains. Hiking. On the right path. All right. Exercise, outdoors, great. Um, we, uh, this is, this usually means to me something good, something adventurous. We just went hiking for my wife's birthday. We walked around a lake in Northern California. It was a seven and a half, what's that? 7.4 miles, but we got a little lost and we turned it into an 8.4 mile hike. Oh, it's supposed to be six and a half and we turned it into seven and a half. But obviously when we see here, um, I went hiking alone years ago in Big Bear Mountain, if you've ever been in Southern California. Um, looking, I heard about Castle, Castle Rock. People said, you got to go hiking there. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And so I went out alone, which is not always the best thing to do, but there was a lot of signs like this. And, and like someone said, I think direction. Uh, there were trail markers. Sometimes there was, it's just an arrow, but a lot of times it was hard to see. Um, but as I started out, I was diligent to follow these markers. Now, interesting, uh, I don't know how deep you want to get, but when you see a marker like this, are you inclined to go the direction it points? Uh, some of you might be a little more uh, contrarian and say, hey, who's telling me? If they're telling me to go that way, I'm going to go the other way. Who put that sign up? Are they trustworthy or not? And some of us just have an adventurous spirit. And if, if the trail marker says to go right, well, we want to go any other direction, don't we? Maybe they're holding out on us. Maybe there's a better path somewhere. Well, I was following the path. I'm a, I'm a rule follower. I was a Starbucks barista for a little while. I took a sabbatical in ministry. And they talk about speed of service and accuracy of service. I totally leaned on the accuracy of service. And I was the slowest barista ever because I wanted to get things right. I wanted to do it according to the directions. So when I saw the trail markers in Big Bear, um, I trusted them. I actually submitted to them and to the direction they were pointing. But somewhere along the way, I got distracted. It wasn't, I wasn't being defiant, but I found that I had gotten off trail. Um, and, and it was really just through neglect. And, I, and you know if you've ever gotten off trail, um, should I move it a little further away? Uh, is that a good idea? Thanks, Nolan. Um, I tend to be breathy when I speak, so we got to move this microphone away. Um, I got off trail, but I hate backtracking. 
It's like the worst thing on a road trip. I hate to backtrack. So I thought, well, I'm off trail, but I bet you I'm sort of in the right direction. I can reconnect. And I kept pushing about five more minutes, 10 more minutes. Now I can't even tell on the ground, you know, if other people have been here. And I'm sitting there going, you know, this is how people end up on the eight o'clock news. You know, they, they're off. They just, they're, they're off. And, and so it came to this moment. I actually humbled myself and I, I turned around. I changed direction and I needed to go back and find the last trail marker that I had seen. And I had gotten about 10 to 15 minutes off trail. Um, when I did get back on trail, I was more diligent to look for arrows because I trusted that, that these markers and these men and women that had gone before me were pointing me to somewhere good, to something beautiful. And I made it. Did, uh, uh, David, I don't know if you guys ever made it up to Castle Rock or seen it. It is amazing. It was beautiful. I remember I had my Bible, I had my journal, uh, a, a wonderful day. And, and I almost, I almost forfeited it. I almost decided to push to my own trail and kind of say, well, maybe this is Castle Rock or, or, or maybe, but I, I, God was, and these, these trail markers were leading me to something good and beautiful. And I believe that God is doing the same thing in his word. Uh, I said this morning that God's word is informative. God reveals himself. This, God's word is God speaking. He is revealing his mind. Um, to us and who he is and alongside it's not just informative it is prescriptive Um, God does prescribe a right way to walk a right way to act and live a a right course of action to be followed um, because God actually wants uh, good for us God is disposed to be kind toward us so his markers are not uh they're not out to just restrict us or keep us from good life. I actually think he's pointing us to good life. Um, he points us in a way that is uh, to live that is consistent with his holy character. Um, that actually leads to beauty and enjoyment and draws others to the love of our Father. And so uh, I think wisdom begins even as we submit and trust God in his word. I'm going to give us a little intro to the book of Proverbs, Um, just things that I've been learning as we come to this book. Uh, Proverbs is a collection of extended teachings and also some very witty, sentence-long maxims that were all designed to help the young and the old uh, to live and, and walk in the ways of the Lord and apply them to daily practice. The first nine chapters of Proverbs, one through nine, they are longer poems, um, and they're urging readers. It's most often it's a father speaking to his son, urging him to uh, trust God's wisdom, to read the rest of the book. Uh, the first nine chapters set the stage for how to read and apply the remainder of the book. Chapters 10 through 31 contain what most of us think of when we think of Proverbs, those short sayings. Uh, chapters 10 through 31 are, are very much, I believe, disconnected. Some try to group them in certain ways, but man, they're just jumping from, from you know, one sentence to another topic as well. But we believe that Solomon has compiled these and that these are God's wisdom that are pointing us in ways to live. It's a very practical book and it's a very optimistic book because even as the father is teaching his son, he believes that his son has the ability to, to listen and to follow. And, and so do you. Even if you are, are usually walking off path or, or wherever you find yourself, that even today, repentance and, and turning and changing direction is possible. And that is the greatest news is that repentance is possible. Aren't we all, if we are followers of Christ, it is a lifelong of repenting, of turning, even and stepping off course and say, God, I was out of bounds. Or the way I spoke to my wife, that was out of bounds. I acknowledge it and God helped me to speak words of life. Um, It's not just that we repent once, but that it is a constant repentance. I think John Stott said this. He said, "We, uh, we are justified once, but we need forgiveness every day. And that we continue to confess sin to the Lord. Um, The book of Hebrews is a a poetry. We said it's an optimistic book. uh, Assumes that we can choose our actions. 
Um, Hebrew, uh, this is biblical poetry. Man, that was one of my worst things in, in, in high school, was trying to read poetic literature and trying to understand what the author was uh, conveying and all the different imagery. Well, we are in a book of uh, poetry. Uh, Hebrew poetry is a little different than our poetry that we know in our culture. Our poetry is often based on uh, rhythm and rhyme. Maybe you've heard this one before. Roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. You've heard that one before, right? And we love it, and it's genius because it rhymes. We're like, that's brilliant. It rhymes. Hebrew poetry isn't really based on rhyming, and even if it did, it wouldn't translate over into English very well. It might rhyme in Hebrew, but when we translate it, it wouldn't. Hebrew poetry, its rhythm and even its cadence is hard to imitate as we translate it into English. But there is a rhythm to Hebrew poetry, but it's more of a thought rhyme to where the first line uh, will go, then the second line rhymes with it, but not by sound, it, it, it it actually echoes the thought, or it, it emphasizes what was said first, maybe even contrasts it. It takes it a step further. That's where the, the rhyme is. A few things I've been learning about biblical poetry is that it's, it's terse, or it's very short. Um, it states things in as few words as possible. Think specifically the last, you know, chapters 10 through 31. And a proverb may not state the whole truth about a subject. And so you need other proverbs to complete the picture. Secondly, biblical poetry is filled with imagery and simile and metaphor. And we'll jump into that starting tomorrow night as well, we'll see. And then biblical poetry uses parallelism and talked about this earlier, that um, parallelism occurs when one line of poetry is divided into two half lines, or, or they're called versets, um, and, and two versets. And the second verset, or second line, will echo or restate the first one, but even take it maybe a bit further. And it helps, I think, even interpret the first line. If I have a question with, well, what does that mean? Then quite often that second line might, might expand the definition either through contrast or by restating it a different way. Um, here's an example of, a, uh, of uh, one verse, Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's, it's technically one line divided into two, and that second line... Um, restates and re-emphasizes the first one by using way of contrast. A soft answer turns away wrath. Have you ever found that to be true? Or a harsh word stirs up anger. And that's the proverb. And the next one will move on to a different topic. But it's meant to sit there and, and we're supposed to carry that. Uh, to consider our own responses as well. And lastly, and here's a challenging one. That proverbs are not promises. Um, proverbs are stating truth. Proverbs are true, but often we want to look to a proverb as a guarantee, like we would uh, a law that God states uh, or commands. Proverbs are, are not necessarily promises. Um, so as we go back to, let me go back to that previous one. A soft answer turns away wrath. I believe that to be true. But have you ever given a soft answer? And it just, you know, there's still more anger and hatred. Yeah, I have. So when that happens, especially with our kids, sometimes as they were growing up, I totally responded softly and gently, and they just blew up. And so now I have a question to say, well, then is, was this, this promise didn't come true? Is the Bible wrong? No, Proverbs gives wisdom. What is generally, most likely, the best course of action and yet we don't look at them as guarantees. Um, what about this proverb? One of our favorite ones. Um, I'm sorry you can't read that too well. That's my bad on the color. Uh, Proverbs 22.6. Let me read it. Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Oh, we, uh, this is one of my favorite comforting words as a parent. That we are to train up our child in the way they should go. Even when they are old, they will not depart from it. This is true, and this is wisdom. 
um, theologian Lindsay Wilson, he says this in his commentary, that this is not a promise to claim, but it's an observation that this sequence typically happens. And it is what is true and right and what we ought to do. But it should not be pressed so hard as to deny that our child has any responsibility for his or her actions. This proverb helps us see that parental training has a strong impact, but not that it bears sole responsibility. We train up our children in the way they ought to go so that they will return to it as they are older. Holmgren says, uh, another theologian says, Proverbs are not infallible statements that are valid for every person or every situation, but rather Proverbs tell us what generally, usually, or often is the case. Now there is pushback in scholarly debate about this, that, that other scholars would say, no, Proverbs are promises, it's just we may not always see them this side of heaven. And, I, and you know, I have room for that. That some of the promises that we see or the prosperity that is, that is um, offered, we may not see today or even on this side of death, but in the end. And, and I can see that, that, that God will have his way, that righteousness will be rewarded. But it's important as we look through these um, that they are wisdom in that time. But we also have to use wisdom to apply certain proverbs to certain situations because sometimes when you read through the proverbs you'll find a couple that seem to contradict each other you're like wait a minute which one is true well the answer is in which situation do you apply this proverb and in which situation is this the correct proverb to use so we're going to study our passage uh through the day for, for today proverbs 1 1 through 7 um, I'll invite you to pray this if you would like. Uh, I pray as we open God's word and, and you're welcome to pray this out loud after me if you choose. Father, teach us from your word this evening. Amen. Amen. Tonight, we're looking at the purpose of the book. Uh, and that's what we will get here in Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Uh, the main verse here is going to lead us to verse 7. That's where we'll camp out. But Proverbs 1.1 1, 1 begins this way. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. We spent this morning learning a little bit about Solomon. Um, but this part of the book is called a superscription. Many of our books have this. There's usually a page at the beginning, uh, like a title page that provides you know, information about the author, the genre, the purpose of the book. And we learned that this book contains um, Proverbs. Proverbs are a short, uh, oh, I did this, I didn't correct this. Not a short saint, uh, that's not what a proverb is. A proverb is a short saying that contains uh, truth, a general truth. And the root word for the, the Hebrew word proverb is mashal, it means to be like. So a proverb is about comparison, uh, compare, comparing things, about analogies. Like, like here's, here's one I didn't put up on the screen. I love this one. Proverbs 26, 17. Listen to this comparison. Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. What a foolish thing to do to take a passing dog, a stray dog, and just to grab it by the ears. Well, that's what it's like when you involve yourself in a quarrel that's not your own. Well, that's good right there. It's a comparison. And then we need to think about in our lives, are, are there certain things, quarrels, issues, arguments that are going on that it, it belongs to us to speak into? But can I tell you, according to this, there are quarrels that don't belong to you. And, 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 you know, and, and I'm not just going to jump right into that. It's like grabbing a stray dog by the ears. Uh, even here in this proverb. So we need to use wisdom of saying this quarrel or this disagreement or this issue comes up. Is this my quarrel? Is this my fight? Or is it better to say, you know what? That is not my own. That one does not belong to me. A, Proverbs, a proverb will ask you to compare your life to what it is teaching. Even as we just did now. Are you meddling in, in people's quarrels and it's really none of your business if you've not been invited in. That's wisdom. On the flip side, there are certain things that go on that need you to speak into it. 
And this is something that you can't just stay silent. And you need God's wisdom. And I need God's wisdom to know, Lord, is this one that you are calling me, that this is my quarrel? Lord, and we, we, we take every issue to him and seek his wisdom. Um, we have Proverbs in our own culture, don't we? Uh, let me say a few and, and tell me if you heard these. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? We, we have that in our language. A stitch in time saves nine. That's brilliant. And that one rhymes. That's why we like it. A stitch in time saves nine. Think about that one for a while. Some of you, I think of some of our younger out here going, I don't even know what you're talking about, a stitch. That you can sew things up. Um, many hands make light work. Have you ever heard that one? Many hands make light work. Or have you heard this one? Too many cooks spoils the soup, spoils the broth. And that's where I want to draw, wait a minute. In some situations, many hands make light work. But in other situations, too many cooks spoil the broth. And can I tell you that both of those are true it's just we need God's wisdom and discernment to apply which proverb or which saying, these are not scriptural, to which situation. And we're going to find that in Proverbs as well. Proverbs are not um, low-hanging fruit. They're not childish. In fact, they cause us to think and to meditate upon them and to pray about them. They're really an, an act of uh, an intellectual activity to study and, and apply God's word appropriately. We learn also in this verse that Proverbs are of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Solomon is considered the father of wisdom literature, of the wisdom tradition. And we learn today that why Solomon uh, is so wise is because God asked him uh, and said, ask me, Solomon, for what you want me to give you. And Solomon asked for a discerning mind, an understanding heart that he might be able to discern between good and evil, and he might be able to, to make judgments and to lead God's people. And so God gave him wisdom like no other. Um, that is why uh, he has compiled this book. So Solomon wrote many of these Proverbs, uh, or at least compiled many of them as well into this uh, collection, we believe. So now let's move on, verse 2 through 4, and we'll hear the purpose of this book that we are about to read. Proverbs 1, 2 through 4. This is why it exists. To know wisdom and instruction, or to gain wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. Verse 3. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. That we might do what is right and just and fair. Wisdom is not an intellectual activity itself. It is meant to make itself out into practice. Verse 4, this book is to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. And, and, and right here are some key words that will be repeated often throughout the book of Proverbs. Um, the purpose of Proverbs is to know wisdom and instruction. Wisdom is the word hokmah in, in Hebrew. And, it, and, and hokmah commonly describes someone's skill. Like in woodworking, uh, you would have wisdom if you had the ability to, uh, to create things with your hands. Or those that were sailors and knew how to sail a ship were considered that they had hokmah, the, the wisdom um, to, to move this vessel. So someone who possesses hokmah or wisdom in their spiritual or relational life, they are knowledgeable and they're skillful in godly living. They are skillful in godly living. To discriminate between right and wrong and to make right and sound decisions. That's the purpose of this book. And, and this word instruction is commonly used for correction. That we would know correction. How many of you love to be corrected? I hate it. I hate it. Um, and, and to be instructed. And yet we will learn that the fool, the fool will not listen to instruction. But the wise woman, the wise man receives correction, receives instruction and becomes wiser still. Um, 
And so verse 2, the purpose of this book is to understand words of insight. Uh, These are insightful sayings. Um, Insight, it it recognizes the true nature of a situation or of a circumstance. It it has a clue, right? It can can see what's going on. And and God's book of of Proverbs will help us grow in this. Um, Verse 3, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and and equity, that we would know what is right and just and fair. And this is where we see that wisdom has a moral nature to it. Um, That to be wise means that we will do what is right and just and fair, which says that there actually is something that's right and there is something that is wrong, which that's under attack today. That, that, someone, that you could actually declare that there are actions or things that are good and right and other things that are evil. God says there are. There is a distinction, and we need to discriminate between the two that we might do what is right according to the eyes of the Lord. What was some of the, the biggest um, uh, accusation against God's people in the Old Testament or the kings of their time? It says that they would do what was right in their own eyes. And that's what's going on today. And I think it even goes on in my, in my youth group, uh, in my church. We do what is right according to our own eyes rather than doing what is right according to what God has declared to be good and right and true. Wisdom's purpose is not to make you rich. Wisdom's purpose is to not make you famous. Wisdom's purpose is that you might do right according to God. In the Bible, a righteous person is equated with a wise person. You can't be wise and yet be morally deficient. Those two don't go together. That is folly and foolishness. I don't care what your GPA is. (laughs) I don't care what your IQ test is. If you do what is evil, if you go after unjust gain or ill-gotten gain, the Bible would say that is unwise and that is folly. Uh, Verse 4, the purpose of this book is to give prudence to the simple. Prudence, uh, or ma is the word. It describes one's ability to just look ahead, just a little bit, to look before you leave. I don't know if any of you guys are snowboarders or skiers. And if you ever hit the park with the jumps and the pipes, there's always signs, at least at the places I go, and it says, look before you leave. In fact, as a snowboarder or a skier going down the terrain park, uh, wisdom... Wisdom says that you actually run through the park once and check out everything and see how big the gaps are. It's very important. You ever gone out? It, it would be, it's foolish. Sometimes I've done, I go and I hit a jump and I don't know how far the gap is. And I'm like, oh, I, over, I underestimated. Too late. You run through it. You take a look. And, and that, that prudence, uh, you guys, I don't know. I, I think of that word prude. I don't know if you've ever been called a prude. And that's a not a good term. It's like a little negative. Oh, you're such a prude. If you're ever not joining in in some sort of activity, you know, uh, uh, you know and you're like, oh, what a prude. But, but prudence says that you're actually looking ahead and saying, will this activity lead to anything good? Is it going to bring blessing? Is it going to bring honor to God? Or is this activity going to lead to something bad? And prudence says you look ahead and then you make your decision accordingly and say, I'm going I'm to avoid that because that's going to lead to destruction. There's nothing that's going to, you know, be gained by that. And that's the purpose of this book, that we might have prudence to the simple. The simple, um, these are people who are inexperienced or naive or gullible. The simple are not yet formed in their thinking. So they lack maturity. But the simple, in the book of Proverbs, they'll come up, they're better off than the fool's. The simple, the verdict is, I always have to say, is the verdict still out or the verdict in? It's not in yet. It's whatever it is. They're not, the simple aren't sure what they're going to do. There's still hope for them. The fool despises God's wisdom and hates his wisdom, turns its back. That's the worst. But the simple, this is to help people. And I I think about the young, but also the old, that that there's time. There's time for you still. That you will, that that the simple can learn prudence and it'll bring knowledge and discretion to the youth or to the young Uh, discretion is the ability to walk in constructive ways and avoid evil paths the young in biblical thought they're often adolescents or the unmarried in biblical thought more generally the young are immature and we know that that maturity is not always attached to an age right 
Uh, I've performed many wedding ceremonies. We've joined many couples. And it's not always they say, well, what age do you need to be to get married? Well, you need to be an adult. <laughs> but there's not like, well, you got to be 25. I've met 25-year-olds that are not mature enough yet, uh, enough yet to, to, to enter into marriage. Yet I've met 19-year-olds that are. It's not an age thing. It's a maturity thing. But look at, look at the next two verses, uh, verses five and six, the purpose. So let the wise hear. We just talked about the simple, those who are unformed in their conclusions. Verse five, let the wise hear an increase in learning and let the one who understands obtain guidance. So this book isn't just for the naive. It's for people like you and me. See what I did there? Like, like the wise, you know, those that, 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 that you get it. it. It's for the older, it's for the mature that we might grow in wisdom because the mature realize you never graduate from the school of wisdom, that we are still learning and growing. Verse six, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. So um, the wise and their riddles. These are, these are sayings. I'm sorry, I want to go back. Um, these are ways that God uses to convey wisdoms through proverbs, through sayings, through words of the wise, and riddles. And these things cause us to think, and, and they stick with us, and we wrestle with them. Um, as we learn, God uses these teaching devices, so we use our intellectual capacities. And now we come to the climax of our passage. The climax, I think, really, even of the book, the main verse here, this is verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The, the, the foundation of all knowledge, the first and guiding principle of all knowledge and wisdom begins with this phrase, the fear of the Lord. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Wisdom and instruction, I think, is correlated with the fear of the Lord, and fools want nothing to do with the fear of the Lord. Tremper Longman, in his commentary on Proverbs, he says, there is no knowledge apart from a proper attitude toward God and relationship with God. There is no wisdom apart from a proper relationship and posture toward the Lord. So that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It's its starting point and its first principle of all knowledge. I think of, of math class. One of the first lessons I learned, which is under uh, debate today, is that one plus one equals two. Uh, and that's what I began. And, 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 you know, we never really leave that principle, even though we go on to math number two and four and algebra and calculus and all these other things. We don't move and graduate from one plus one. Everything is built upon that. Same thing with the fear of the Lord. It is the, the controlling principle of all wisdom and knowledge. But fools want nothing to do with the fear of the Lord, with his wisdom or instruction. And this doesn't mean that someone who rejects God, it doesn't mean that they don't know anything. Some of our world's greatest thinkers have no regard for God whatsoever. However, they don't see the big picture you might have skill in sailing the seas, but if you don't understand the fear of the Lord, you don't know who made the sea and who ultimately guides your way. So true knowledge begins with a reverent awe, a worshipful submission to the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Now, we're, uh, we just met each other uh, today. I don't know what sort of relationship you have with this phrase, the fear of the Lord. Some of our initial reaction, um, and I know as I was a college campus pastor, college students had a very difficult relationship with this word. Wait a minute, we are to fear God? No, 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 God doesn't want us to fear him. Um, you know, there, uh, there is no uh, fear in love. Love casts out fear. I've read that in the Bible, in the New Testament. No, 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 we aren't to fear the Lord. But the truth of the scriptures is that we are. We need to understand and embrace and know the depths of this phrase. Do you have the fear of the Lord? Or could I, could I say of you that you are a God-fearing woman? Or you are a God-fearing man? And if I say that, that is a good thing to be, a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. The Bible uses a term often uh, to describe the proper relationship 
in response to God. And that's the fear of the Lord. And it doesn't mean that we're supposed to be afraid of God. Though God, we are not God. He is transcendent and far above. That People trembled uh, whenever they were in the presence of God. Or an angel. They always say, hey, do not fear. Because it was terrifying to be in his presence. We are supposed to pursue relationship with God. People say, well, if I'm scared of God, then I'm going to hide from him. I'm going to keep my distance from him. And if I'm afraid of God or if I have the fear of the Lord, then that means I just think that God is going to squash me with his thumb. And I live under that. But as we read the Bible, we find over 300 instances where the word fear is connected with the Lord and referring to God. And the scriptures teach over and over how fearing God is a good thing. It is a positive and desired response. In fact, I think some of our issues today is that there is no fear of the Lord. Even in our churches, even among those that, that claim the name of Christ, there is no fear of the Lord. In, in Genesis 42, just a couple examples here. In Genesis 42, um, Joseph, remember, had been sold into slavery by his brothers. Later, J- Joseph becomes one of the most important men, powerful men in Egypt. His brothers, many years later, come back to him. Joseph sees them. They don't recognize Joseph yet. And, and Joseph uh, is just, you know, he, he's a, a bundle of emotions there. But he says to them, listen, um, go back and bring your youngest brother. Bring, bring um, him to me. And they're, but yet leave one of your brothers with me. And, and in order to comfort them, Joseph says, do this and you will live for I fear the Lord. Why does Joseph add that to his brother? Because that actually brings comfort to his brothers because he's saying, listen, trust me, do this, you will live because I'm a God-fearing man. In Exodus uh, 1.17, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, were told by the king of Egypt to destroy and kill any Hebrew baby boy. But the Hebrew, the midwives, they did not do it. Why? Exodus 1.17, but the midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. Why did they let them live? Because they had the fear of the Lord. Because they had more regard for God and his word than they did for the king of Egypt. Listen to this in the New Testament. Sometimes we think, well, the fear of the Lord, that's an Old Testament phrase. Oh, it's a New Testament phrase. Short verse here in Acts 9.31 describing the the early church and how it was growing. We read this in Acts 9.31. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. It, the church. How did the church multiply? What were they doing? They were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We think fear and comfort. or like, well, uh, between those two, I'll choose comfort. But fear and comfort go together in this, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I pray that that my church, I pray the church that we lead, that I lead, would walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, that that more and more people would come to know Christ as Savior, that we would grow. I pray that Hume Lake would walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So in the biblical sense, the fear of the Lord, we use words like this. It is respect for God. It is reverence. It is to be awe, in awe of God's majesty, that, that we have some ability to grasp his greatness, his holiness, and his otherness compared to you and me, that he is not like you and me. Um, the fear of the Lord, we also learn and will learn in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is a moral mindset, that it involves our actions. That we, to fear the Lord means we acknowledge and we live by God's view of right and wrong. We'll read in Proverbs later, as you do, uh, to, the fear of the Lord is to shun evil. So I think that even helps us understand to fear the Lord is to turn away from evil. That we are to cultivate the fear of God in our life that we might be truly wise and do what is right and just and fair. So the fear of the Lord is humble and worshipful submission to God and his word. It means that we have regard for God. We acknowledge him in all that we do. We know he is present. 
We are never, nothing is hidden from God's sight. So we um, have regard for God, uh, for who he is, and what he says. And that's, I think, where I find the challenge is I know people that have regard for God and love to worship God, but they have no regard for what God says. The Bible is not a comp- compilation of what God said, because if God, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then when we read God's word as we are right now, this is not something God said, it's what God is saying. This is God that he continues. So will we turn our ear to God? I can't just say, God, I love you. I have awe and respect for you, but I don't care for what you say. Could you imagine if I tried that with my wife? I love you. I I love you, but I have no regard for whatever you say. That wouldn't fly in my home. I don't know that would fly in your home either. But sometimes we think that flies with God. We have regard for his words. Therefore, we will align by the power of the Holy Spirit And our posture is that we will align our lives according to God's word rather than reading God's word so that it aligns with our lives or our perspective or our understanding. What happens in a household where there is no fear of the Lord? What happens in your workplace where there is no fear of the Lord? What happens in our schools when there is no fear or regard for God whatsoever? Well, what happens is we begin to do what is right in our own eyes. I've given you a couple of definitions of people that are smarter than me um, about the fear of the Lord, but my favorite definition did not come from a theologian. It came from one of my children, uh, my daughter, when she was 11 years old, and trying to talk to her and explain, what, what does the fear of the Lord mean to you? And she just simply said, to fear God means he is not someone you can just push around. That's probably my favorite theological definition. It means you understand that God is not someone you can just push around. Here's another feeble attempt. Um, have you ever had an experience where you have both just this terrifying awesomeness and yet it's something beautiful and amazing and it's all at the same time where you're just like, you lose your breath and you're just like, whoa, <laughs> like, wow. And you're trembling and yet you can't look away because it's so amazing and awesome. And, and, and I know this is a feeble attempt, but does anybody know, have you ever been to this place? Do you know the name of this dam? It's the Hoover Dam. Anybody ever been there? I grew up going to this. And have you ever gone to the top and looked over? You can't tell me. You can't look over because you can walk across that and look down there. And my heart just drops. I'm not breathing like I was before. In fact, when I'm at the Hoover Dam, I just, there's just something in me that wants to stay low. I want to like, you know, grab onto things because I'm, I'm in, in a dangerous position there. And yet it's awesome and it's magnificent. It's human, it's man-made, but it's beautiful. And yet it's also, I can't just tread carelessly over it. I'm not going to do jumping jacks or, or handstands or play catch of the football across it because one wrong step and I'm toast. There's this, this, it, it's awesome and it's terrifying and it's beautiful all at the same time. And yet, I enjoy it and I'm drawn to it. Uh, my wife and I, I couldn't wait to take her because this, this is the place that my family used to go. We used to go to Lake Mead all the time and water ski and everything. And so when we were dating or married, married, we went there and, and, and I'm so excited to show her. This. And, and we actually were enjoying it being on top. In fact, we, uh, we found that when you look over that that's this side of the dam there's just this hot desert wind that just blows your hair back you know powerful and you look over and we found you're not supposed to do this but we found that if you fill your mouth with water and then you spit it in small enough droplets over that the wind the water will actually just hover right in front of you and then it would hover over us we're like this is amazing there's a water fountain so my wife and I kept just filling our mouth with water and spitting it over not realizing that the water was landing on the people behind us (laughs) And all they had to do was like, you know, and we'd be done. But, but there was just this enjoyment, but this understanding and, and, and trying to picture, do you have the fear of the Lord? Do you understand his greatness, his majesty, his holiness? And so in light of the greatness of God, men and women have an appropriate feeling of inadequacy and insufficiency in his presence. That's, those are from the words A.W. Tozer. Uh, he says that in, in, in the light of God's greatness, you, you know, you acknowledge your insufficiency, your inadequacy in God's presence. 
in Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says that when we grasp the greatness of God, it ends all controversy between the man and his God. When we grasp his greatness, he says the fight goes out of the man. The fight goes out of the, the, the person that acknowledges the greatness of God. It, it, it's like, and again, it's like stepping into the ring and a guy that looks like this, right? If I were to step into the ring with boxing gloves and, and this is my opponent, the wise decision for me would be to acknowledge his strength is above my own. The wisest, greatest thing for me to do would be to drop my gloves, to lift my hands up and say, you win. You win. That is wisdom. There's an acknowledgement. I wouldn't try to go up against someone like this or actually anybody. I'd probably get beat in any fight. A volleyball player, you know, we always get beat up. Um, the same is true with God, that the true acknowledgement, the fight goes out of the woman. The fight goes out of the man. We drop our gloves and say, you win. You are God. You are holy, and I am not. But then we think, so is that the end? Is that what the fear of the Lord is? That we are simply toast before the greatness of the holy God that will just burn up in his presence and that God is going to pummel us because he has strength to do so. That's not the full picture. We keep reading the scriptures. We, we begin to grasp the greatness of God and then we enter in the goodness of God. The greatness of God and the goodness of God that exist together. That God is great. We tremble at his majesty. He is far above and far beyond. The word we use is he is transcendent, far above us. He's not just, you know, great in like a sequential order. He's number one and we're like number 53. You know, no, he is on a completely different scale. He is transcendent. At the same time, God is good. He has declared himself to be good, that he is disposed to be kind toward us. That he has positioned himself. He stands ready to welcome us into his family. He stands ready to forgive those who repent, who would be saved by the work of Jesus Christ. That God, we learn, God is good and he draws near to us in the person of Jesus Christ and through his indwelling Holy Spirit. So God is transcendent, he is far above, and yet God is imminent. That's the word, uh, he's imminent, it's spelled with an A in the middle of it, and it means his nearness. That God is transcendent and far above and far beyond, and yet he's near, so near that those who, who turn to him in faith, God makes his home inside of us and lives with us, and we are never alone. So we are not crushed by the greatness of God. God was disposed that he provided salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus' life was not taken from him. Everything we read in the scriptures is that Jesus gave his own life. The, Jesus was a part of the plan. And that was his desire to bring sinful men and women back to himself. That is God who loves, who demonstrated his love for us and that while we were disobedient, while we were, our backs were turned to him, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So God is great and yet he's displayed his goodness at the same time so that God is not out to crush us. Though he can, his desire is to save us and to bring us into his family forever. So A.W. Tozer puts it this way and I'll walk it through because I just think it's, it's brilliant. He, he said, the greatness of God rouses fear within us. But his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him. So to fear and not be afraid, that is the paradox of faith that we live in. To fear God and not be afraid is the paradox of faith that we walk in. Do you know the fear of the Lord? Do you regard him and his word and his righteousness? Knowing that his, his grace goes deeper even than our sinfulness and our disobedience, that we need forgiveness every day. But yet God stands ready to welcome us. God stands ready to receive us in repentance that we can change. And can I just tell you that you can change. I can change. As a husband, I, I'm, I'm learning still to be a husband. I'm learning to be a pastor. 
learning that God is continuing, if, if I am humbly submitted to him, that I will continue to grow, this process of growth. And the book of Proverbs, among all of scriptures, the book of Proverbs is, is pointing us toward walking in, in God's paths of goodness and blessedness. I'll, I'll wrap us up with this illustration. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, tries to capture this in his uh, book, The Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we see this tension played out. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this. Any of you guys read this one? Um, maybe seen the movie? Uh, he wrote this for his goddaughter. He portrays God as a lion named Aslan. And this is just a quote from pages 75 and 76. Um, Mrs. Be- Mr. Beaver tells the girls, he says, Aslan is a lion. Uh, the, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I I thought Aslan was a man. Um, Is he quite safe, she asks. I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver, Don't you hear what what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course Aslan isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Who said anything about God being safe? But he's good, and he's the king, and we walk in this tension. There's another part in the book where the girls were walking alongside Aslan and, and they're just terrified, this, just this magnificent beast and this strength that overwhelms them. And yet she said, but all I want to do is just bury my hands into his fur. Can we walk in that tension with the Lord to fear the Lord and yet we're, we're not afraid of him? This sets up the rest of the book. Because all of wisdom is God-centered. We're not going to go out and just find this random piece of wisdom somewhere. Go search for it in the world. It is found in the word of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Do you want to be wise? I do. I want to, to grow. I want to be experienced in the good life. We're going to continue. We'll, we'll paraphrase the rest of chapter 1. Tomorrow night we'll get into chapter Two, and we'll see that, that walking in the ways of the Lord is actually a safeguard in our life. It, it is a, a security in our life. I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, would you keep us from being fools? Fools that despise your wisdom and that hate your instruction? Or fools that just simply disregard your word? Rather, we want to grow in wisdom that we might act in ways that are right and just and fair in our marriages, in our schools, in our relationship, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, Father. We want to walk in accordance with your word. So would you teach us and would you guide us in your paths of righteousness in the name of Jesus Christ.